Andrea, we're very pleased to have you here. Uh, looking forward. Uh, please join me on stage. Hi. Thanks. So from October 30th to November 7th, 1999, I had one of the most incredible experiences of my life. For a project called Free Running Rhythms and Patterns in an Isolated Human Subject, I lived for one week without access to external time in a basement studio in Berlin. And the way that I did this was that I put myself in this space that was shut off from all sources of external light and sound. And so I would know what patterns my life would fall into. I used a time-lapse recorder, and the time-lapse recorder was set for 168 hours, which is the length of a week. When the recorder switched off, that's how I would know the experiment was over, and there'll be more about that in a minute. And these are the three cameras that were hooked up throughout the space, so they kind of you know, were monitoring the different parts of the space. I've always been really interested in how subjective our understanding of time is. And, you know, people talk a lot about physical structures such as architecture and design as, you know, as controlling us. You know, I always thought about how the invisible structure of time probably controls us even more. And it's sort of interesting how time, it didn't even really exist before the 13th century. Or, I mean, time obviously existed, but we didn't have this concept of measured time. The other thing about this project, okay, like the first time I kind of became interested in this idea was actually when I was a kid. And my parents had a set of Encyclopedia Britannicas. I don't know if you guys probably know what those are before Wikipedia. And I would spend hours and hours looking through them. And I remember finding this article where um, these studies that scientists did where they would put people in caves to see what kind of patterns there, what, it was about studies on circadian rhythm. So they really wanted to see what kind of patterns they would fall into if they were removed from the cycle of the sun. But one thing that is interesting about those studies is that they found out that the natural human rhythm was actually 23 hours, not 24 hours. And so I remember always thinking, well, if that's true, like what's more natural? Is it the natural rhythm of the human body or is it the natural rhythm of the sun? And thinking, like it kind of brought into question for me this whole idea of, you know, this fundamental notion of what's natural. Later, I read, you know, years and years later, when I kind of went back to that, I read somewhere where they'd figured out how to reconcile that, but at the time it seemed really interesting. But the other thing that I thought about a lot was that when you read about these studies, the one thing they always spoke about was just the objective, you know, like the results, you know, well, how many hours did people sleep in a week? No one ever spoke about the subjective experience of living without time. And that, to me, seemed like the most interesting part of the whole experience. You know, what does it feel like to live without time? One thing that I found in my own experiment that was really interesting was that you could create such an extreme experience with such a, a minor, minor shift in, you know, your physical surroundings. Or You know, I just changed one thing. I didn't change time. I just didn't know what time was. And yet my entire experience of, you know, that moment in reality kind of changed. I'm always interested in this fine line between freedom and restriction or liberation um, and restriction. And I feel like this work is a really good example of that because what I was essentially doing was liberating myself but through, you know, through these kind of very restrictive means. This is the kitchen in the apartment. 
I'm just, this is a little bit of a backstory I'm going to allow myself to, I'm going to tell you, and I'm only going to tell you a few of these, but sometimes I think the stories behind the stories are more interesting than what actually, I mean, the kind of official thing that I tell everyone. What happened during this week is that I actually ran out of food, I'm guessing about two-thirds of the way through the week. So I was reduced to cooking like ketchup into soup. And of course, I had tons of beer. And so I figured, well, I'm not going to starve to death because I could just drink myself for the week. But I did start to worry because it was a German, you know, it was like a surveillance recorder. And I had an assistant who figured it out for me, but I didn't speak German and I couldn't read the instructions. And I kept, and we hadn't tested it first, so I kept thinking, well, maybe I did it wrong. You know, maybe it's just like I hit the end of the week and it's recycling over, and I'll just be down here forever, and like nobody will ever find me. And so I finally, I had a friend who was doing a residency at the same time, and I called him, and I'm, you know, I'm like, Mike, what time? Is it? Don't tell me what time it is. Just say yes or no. Is it after midnight on Saturday? And he said no. And I said okay. And he knew I was going to do it. He didn't know I was doing that experiment then. I said, I'm do you know, I'm in this basement and I'm doing it. And I would buried a key under a rock up at the top by the door. So I said, I'm down here and I'm out of food. And I said, can you just come down here at midnight on Saturday and like get me? And just so I know for sure that this thing's ending. And he's like, I can't. I have a date. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then I started crying and then he did it. So it was great. And he brought me Chinese food and... Um, it was really, really good having somebody show up, and he said I looked really, really weird when he came in. So his theory was that I didn't have enough oxygen. I like to start with this project. I think it's one of my favorite projects, um, in part because for me, one of the defining sort of principles of a good work is that there's some sort of real lived, you know, experience attached to it. The other thing about this work is it set up a problem that I haven't resolved yet, and then I'm constantly thinking about and. That question is, is it enough for me to have that experience myself as an artist? Or do I actually have to make an experience for everyone, for the audience? And I think that, you know, we're conditioned to think that we're communicators and that we're meant, you know, sort of make everyone join in on this. But then, you know, the problem with that is, is that when you do that, then it becomes so mediated. And it can, in my mind, sometimes when you do that, it can become almost like, you know, the replica of an experience or something. So it's something I think about a lot in my practice. So this, this is how I did resolve the, kind of resolve that project at that time, and I turned it into an exhibition. These are, I made a timeline, and that was kind of broken up. There was, you know, I think you saw from the other image that there were all these panels that went around the gallery. And there was one panel for each day and of the week, and then you know a stripe on that was for the hours. So I watched the videotapes that I took and tried to see what patterns my life fell into to see if I really did lose that you know the kind of standard pattern of my life before my week without time. The reason I did the experiment is because for years and years and years I've been trying to actually create a piece called Vacation from Time, and I have a kind of, you know, often a backlist of different, backlog of different ideas I want to do, and museums will say, I want to do a show, you know, and I'll give them a couple of proposals, and this was the one thing that no one ever picked, and for precisely the reason that I explained, because if you do that in an institution, what happens if somebody goes, I wanted to make these timeless chambers, and, you know, it created all these problems, because if somebody goes in, and then you don't know what time they're coming out, or, you know, it, it, anyway, it's... Um, so it was one of those sort of like dream pieces that became impossible. So I made these models of what the time tunnels could look like. I made four of them, and I dedicated one to each thing that I didn't have enough time to do. 
So this one was time to read every book I ever wanted to read. I think there was another one that said time to get into perfect shape, time to get to know people better. And then one of my favorites said time to do nothing productive at all. Um, two more experimental living structures. So these two pieces I'm going to show you were kind of around the same time. And um, I kind of made this decision, this was in the late 90s, that I wanted all of the works that I did then to result in like a real like living experience or experiment. Pocket Property was a 54-ton concrete island that some of you know here, actually, because it was done in the body of water in between Sweden and Denmark. I used to read a lot of science fiction, so I think that sometimes my work kind of developed out of that as kind of these like darkly humorous scenarios. Like I would take something that I see going on in our culture and just push it to its furthest extreme. So at the time, I just moved back to Southern California, which is really different than New York or than Europe in that it's such a kind of capsulized society. And, you know, everybody spends all their time in one of three capsules, you know, well, or two, like on their property in their house or in their car. And um, there's very little kind of physical interaction. I started to think about what it would be like if you could turn all of those capsules into one product. So that was what the pocket property was. I was doing drawings at the time. I was imagining future scenarios where all of the land in Southern California had been developed and there would be like this whole string of like, you know, my pocket properties like marching off in like little like communities, suburbs like out into the ocean someday. The other, I've done a couple of works that deal with islands, and the image of the island or the idea of the island is something that I'm really drawn to because I think it represents to us self-sufficiency and autonomy um, in islands almost like kind of, you know, like your own country or something where you're in control of everything and it's your domain. The interesting thing about that is kind of the island, like the illusion of self-sufficiency, instead of making us more powerful, in reality, I think it actually makes us less powerful because it mitigates our, you know, our ability to work as a collective. It's, or maybe it's like the illusion of individualism. I think that the island is somehow symbolic of that for me. Uh, this is the inside of the island. I, my plan was to build it and to live on it for an entire summer. And I'm, if you guys can imagine, I'm from Southern California where it's really, really nice in the water. Um, but you know, it became quite difficult and it was really stormy. Um, there was one point where we decided that we wanted to make a refrigerator by cutting a hole in the floor of the islands and putting a net so that we could drop food down to keep it cold. But what happened once we did that, you know, the island would kind of slap up and down in the waves, and then whenever it would slap down, it would make like a mini blowhole in, on the interior. So <laughs> that wasn't such a great idea. The other thing I realized is that I also kind of fantasized about being able to keep it, you know, my own private island, and I realized that, that at that point in my life was completely unrealistic to be able to maintain it from my home base. We, everyone, we kind of realized it was going to have to be destroyed at the end of the project. So I worked with this Danish filmmaker named Joachim Hamu, and we just shot a film on the island as a way of um, kind of turning it into something that would go on. The guy on the left was a carpenter named Paul, but he was also a character in our film, kind of like, you know, everybody, they were sort of like real people on the island, but they also had roles in the film. And uh, when I took that picture, he's sort of glaring at me because he'd just fallen and scraped his knee, and he said, your island bit me. And then that was Yorkham and some of the guys on the crew from shooting it. I'm going to show you another work that was also inspired by um, kind of suburban Southern California. The 
cellular compartment units are a kind of a comment on the compartmentalization of time, space, and function. I've always been really interested in the history of architecture, and if you follow it, you'll see throughout history it's become increasingly compartmentalized and segregated, uh, very much like our lives as well. And I mean, just for a really gross sort of like huge collapsing of time, you can, from the Middle Ages when everybody would live and conduct business like all together, employees and employers and extended families in one sort of large hall or room to now when, you know, everybody, we have these houses where each kid has their own room. You know, I was thinking, I think maybe my generation was the first one where it was an assumption that each child in the family would have their own bedroom. And I've often wondered if that was part of the reason that, you know, my generation, we have such hard time having relationships because we never really learned how to cohabitate in spaces. I guess, I, you know, I've, this, this piece came two things. Like, one, I think everyone does this. You, like, lie in your apartment or you lie and you think, oh, you know, I wonder, like, you know, how many rooms I could really fit in this space. And then I was reading this article in the Los Angeles Times once about in the California, I've mentioned this a few times when we were doing talks walking through the show, but we have this phenomenon called McMansions. So people build these really, really huge houses with all of these rooms, but they're very cheaply built and they're all crowded together, you know, in one little community with very small pieces of land. But the um, newspaper article was about this phenomenon where people who would never have servants, they were building servants' quarters in their houses because that would become a new selling point. So, you know, it's this idea that the house now just has like all of these different rooms, you know, your entertainment center, your dining room, your breakfast room, your kitchen, your laundry room. You know, it like goes on and on how every single, like there's all these different rooms and that kind of connotes luxury to people in the U.S. And so I thought, well, you know, I was living in this little studio apartment. I thought, well, like what if I could turn my studio apartment into like, you know, a 10-room, you know, house or structure. And so the cellular compartment units were an idea for doing that. You'd build this inside of your apartment. And I wanted to see if it was actually functional. So I did this piece actually in Great Britain in Birmingham at a space there and because again because I wanted to live in it we weren't allowed to do it in the space proper so they had to rent an off-site space so that we could stay in it so we built it and I lived in it for a while actually there were a bunch of volunteers who helped work on it and they lived outside of town so they had to take buses at home at night and we'd work really late and then I felt kind of sorry for them so originally I was going to live there alone but then we ended up making bedrooms for everyone um, so they could stay in it. And it actually, I have to say that the space worked surprisingly well. Um, it's uh, the only kind of thing that didn't work out great in the whole structure was the round doorways because you kind of bang your knees up when you go through the doorways, but they look so good that there's no way I would ever get rid of them. What I want to show next is just how these experimental sort of living structures that I was making came out of uh, kind of a whole practice in my own day-to-day -day life. So when I first, okay, so I, I, um, in the U.S., I guess I don't know how long you guys go to school here, but in the U.S., you know, we, we do our master's in fine arts, and then we kind of go out into the world. I moved to New York in 1990, which was the last kind of big art world recession before this one, and I actually kind of like recessions. So I moved there. I had, like, really, really huge student loans. I had no money. I was kind of lucky to have a job at all, but the only place I could afford to live was this little tiny storefront space. I should calculate all of this into metric. It was 200 square feet, which means nothing to you guys, but it was really, really tiny, two little rooms. 
the thing that worked out so great about this was that it gave me a kind of autonomy with my practice where I really didn't feel like I had to go chasing down like having gallery representation. I felt like because it was inherently a public space, I felt that I could just kind of make my art and relax and, and just kind of open it up to the public whenever I was ready for an audience. And I, that was something that really kind of stayed with me. And I think that it's kind of, you know, evident in my practice even now that like that's something that really works for me. So it had two rooms. The front room was this really small room. Also, I should mention that my work then is I was working with animals. I was breeding animals, and that would be like a whole other slide talk, so I'm not going to go into it too much. But I was um, working with animals in this very, very small space. And so the front space was kind of the public space. And then the back space was where I lived, even though um, at one point I had this huge like 80-gallon tank full of I was breeding flies, so um, flies in all various stages, quails, chickens, and this huge 80-pound Weimaraner named Jethro. I also was making these breeding units for the animals that were these really beautiful self-contained systems for them to live in. They were sculptures, and, but I mean the animals did lived in them. And I, I had this little tiny Ikea cot, so I had like this really big desk, and my cot was kind of like stuck under the desk so that you know my head was sticking out and I'd sleep under there. And um, everything was like, you know, kind of t taken over with all that stuff. And I remember looking at their, um, these breeding units I was making for them and thinking that their lives looked so much nicer than my own. And I decided that I was going to try and make a kind of system for myself. And this happens for me sometimes in my practice where the things, like some of my favorite projects actually don't really start out as art projects. So this is the very beginning of starting to hone that. and. You can so there was this table that was um, both for you know eating and office work. I took baths in that plastic sink. There's a toilet right behind the wall where the sink is, and then there was kind of a roof here that I slept. It was like a loft actually. It wasn't the real roof of the room, and I slept up there. And um, then I kind of was mapping out this grid in the wall. It's one square foot increments because I was trying to figure out how much space I really needed for each thing in my room. And then eventually, I, my friend who welded up my breeding units, I got him to weld me up what I called a management and maintenance unit for myself. And um, I set it up and I started living in it. I used to call it my nucleus of perfection. I felt like I was so young and I constantly had to move. And so it was really nice having something that would be like a, a stable home that would go inside of the homes that other people owned. This is kind of a sort of weird long story, but you know, I told you I was doing the animals and that was my work. And then there was one point where um, I started to think that maybe this actually would be part of my practice. And I had a studio visit with Andrea Rosen who convinced me to put it in her gallery. But the thing that I think is kind of most interesting about this is that at the time, I mean, this looks so modern. And at the time, I didn't even really like modern design that much. I loved furniture and decorative arts, and um, it was, you know, I realize you guys have always had good design, so I don't know if you can relate to this, but in the States, before things like design within reach and dwell happened, you know, like sort of the normal, you know, mainstream people, like people and normal people actually did not have an appreciation for modern design, and I liked um, arts and crafts and mission style. Those were like my favorite kinds of furniture. And 
what really made me start to come around to it was as I learned more about modernism, I started to think about how it was all about this kind of really beautiful inversion of a system of codes. So, for instance, before the Industrial Revolution, the things that would make an object have value would be either like really expensive materials or a lot of like handcraft, a lot of handwork. And then at this point when, you know, um, kind of mass production and the Industrial Revolution meant that you could make goods for the masses that were seemingly very kind of elaborate and well-crafted, but all of a sudden a new code was created for denoting luxury, and that was, it was a new ideology, basically. And the things that used to be associated with, with poverty all of a sudden were kind of elevated to indicate that something's more pure. So, for instance, white paint, which previously meant that you were poor because you didn't have enough money to afford to put pigment in your paint, all of a sudden was kind of elevated um, to this other, whole other level. And I really, really liked that. I mean, I really liked how it just played with all of these sort of issues of high and low, and it all just became like this kind of very kind of conceptual code rather than associated with like real physical properties of objects. And so what I decided was that um, because my life was so sparse and like, you know, I was poor and I didn't have that many objects, that I would use the language of modern design to glamorize it. Since I couldn't live like everyone else did, I would try and make my life look so cool and so appealing that everyone else would want to live like I did, basically. So, so A to Z East. So in 1994, I moved. I moved a few times, and each time I did, my work would really change to respond to the kind of environment I was in. But by 1994, still like another kind of recession, very good for artists, um, I managed to buy this building in Brooklyn, New York. And when I say this price in the US, everyone gasps. But so if anyone's good at doing the conversions, I bought it for $120,000, which is like kind of unimaginable. It was in Williamsburg in Brooklyn, which is now super hip and trendy. But at the time, you know, like it was really hard to get curators or gallerists to cross the river to come do studio visits. But um, I felt super, super lucky to get this building. And because it was mine, I got to do a lot more to it than I could do to the spaces that I was renting. Um, it's very small. It's called a row house. So, you know, there's just these little, it was originally a boarding house in the end of the 19th century. So I started um, turning it into a showroom testing grounds for my work. Uh, the picture on the left is of my office. Um, actually, both pictures are of my office. And this was the kitchen. I was doing this project. I'd been doing it for several years by the time I moved in here, where I was making my own food. I was making the A to Z food group. And I really hate to cook, but I'm really healthy. And I also was always very envious of the food. You know, I had always had animals, and you feed them this food, and you read the package, and it has all of the nutrients, and they seem to like it. And so I got a dehydrator, and I was going to try and make food like that for myself. And uh, so I dehydrated everything that I wanted to be eating, and then I'd make a food mix of it and, you know, turn it into soups or patties or eat it raw. And that's what this, the, on the left, this was like my processing unit where I would make that in my kitchen. This is the Ottoman furniture. So what I, I would make a lot of different prototypes for furniture and live with them. And then when I wanted to kind of move on or make something new, I would send these out to a show and then kind of you know, experiment with something else after that. These these were the first furniture they made. I'll see if I have an, no, I don't have another picture. Pretty self-explanatory. You just use them for everything. You can use them chairs, tables, a bed here. 
this was the pit bed. Uh, the pit bed happened because I was always really, you know, like those kind of like really gross plush sofas are so much more comfortable than any of my furniture. So I wanted to figure out what made furniture inherently comfortable. And I had this theory that inside of furniture is more comfortable than on top of furniture. So this is my attempt to make a piece of inside of furniture, which I think it did work. I think it was really awesomely comfortable. And these little cubbies, I had a pad that I slept on top of and then a comforter and a pillow so I could stuff them in those cubbies in the daytime and then take them out at nighttime and sleep in there. But in the daytime, then it was just more like a place to lounge around. This is the bathroom. And the downstairs, the storefront space, my assistant at the time was a bartender when he wasn't working for me. Robert De Niro had these had a restaurant in Tribeca where he worked. And so we, this was the first time in my life I made enough money like to pay my bills and actually had a little bit after that. So I blew it all um, buying alcohol and inviting everyone in the neighborhood over to these cocktail evenings every Thursday night. And Dan would, we called this Dan's desk, so he would make cocktails at A to Z East and uh, give them to people. And can, I only drink out of bowls. That's kind of another thing. So we'd give them to people in the A to Z container. And they could walk around and see whatever furniture was being prototyped at that time. Um, so it was always kind of open for people who wanted to see it. Uh, and I don't have this ma that many rooms in my house. These are just like the same room I'm showing you over and over again with different stuff in it. Um, this is the Bofa. So this is one of my favorite pieces of furniture. It's a cross between a box and a sofa. This goes back in time to when I showed you the first living unit that I made for myself that I was living in. And I'd just gotten out of grad school, and I had a job. I was working at a gallery. And you know, when you work at a gallery, you're supposed to look good. Um, not, not, as, not as good as people look now, but presentable at least. Um, I started to think a lot about actually how oppressive it was to try and come up with a new outfit to wear every day, because usually I could get it together to have one nice thing. But you know, I was thinking about what happens if you wear, like you're not supposed to wear the same thing two days in a row, right? Like you know, if you do, people either think that you're dirty that you were out partying the night before and you didn't make it home. You know, it's like, it's just kind of a social taboo. And also growing up in, you know, suburban California, which is like mall land, I think that, you know, we're all brainwashed to think that infinite variety is, you know, the, equates total freedom. So I started to think a lot about how continuity could sometimes be more liberating than constant variety or than, than having a lot of different options. And... Again, as a personal experiment in the beginning, I'm, the dress on the left is um, this really nice linen dress. So I made myself a dress that I really liked. And it was during the summer, so it was the slow period in the gallery. And I wore it every day for six months just to see what that would be like. Sort of a, a funny side note, and I've said this before, so I always feel a little, but is that um, the director at the gallery where I worked was also a friend, and it was literally the very, very last day of the project where she looked at me kind of funny, and she's like, didn't you wear that dress yesterday? <laughs> For years, I wondered what that meant, if she's being facetious or not, and then I finally asked her not so long ago, and she said she literally did not notice that I was wearing the same thing every day, which was... But it, it worked out really well, and so I thought I would just keep doing it for as long as it felt right. And um, so th during the garments that you see here, each one was a six-month uniform. And people ask if it smelled, and my quick explanation just to get that off your minds is that you can see that there's almost always something under it that I wear, so I would wash that garment every day. 
um, or I would have like multiple white shirts that I could wash. And the other thing is, is that I found that I never really got bored wearing something because I would spend so much time dreaming up the next thing I was going to wear. So it was really fun thinking about what the next uniform would be. Eventually, um, though, at the end, I'll go back to this, because this was pretty much the extent of like every garment I could think of that I wanted to wear. I had no ideas after this. And so I kind of hit a wall at the very end. And I was stuck because I didn't want to do something twice, because that was boring. And I started to think that I needed some guidelines to work in, because it was so arbitrary in a way to make these decisions. So I started to look for some rules when making my, my garments. And I looked at a lot of rules that already existed. I often am inspired more by things I don't like than by things I do like. And one thing I didn't like was Russian constructivist clothing. Like, I didn't get it. I didn't understand why it was so geometric and sort of, you know, clunky looking. And then I started reading more about it. And I realized that th the idea behind it is that, um, that they wanted to maintain the integrity of the panel of fabric. So, you know, there was this idea that you weave fabric in a rectangle and um, that you really don't want to adulterate it by cutting it into another shape and then sewing it into another shape. And I love that idea. I always love things that kind of make total, they don't make sense, but then they make total sense. And I thought that I would work with that idea and push it to its furthest extreme by only making garments out of rectangles. And that's when I felt like this total kind of burst of creativity. And I think this is what it must be like to be a painter. You know, you have like a rectangle, you have the canvas, you have the paint. And when, once everything's pared down to just a couple of decisions, I think it's actually much, much easier to kind of work within those parameters. So this was a dress. I wore one in front and one in back. Um, it was the beginning of the personal panels. And then, you know, I just kind of went crazy for like five years and made all of these different kinds of personal panels, which is really fun. And so um, I didn't, oh, yeah, this one, I'm going to talk later about a body of work called raw. So at one point when I was doing the raw work, I also made these kind of raw personal panels where I would literally just tear the fabric from the bolt and safety pin it, or sometimes use one seam, like these dresses would have one seam, and then all the straps would be safety pinned on, and everything else was just kind of torn. Uh, it was kind of funny, because it was around the same year that high fashion was using safety pins, like Versace was doing a lot of this, and I remember the curator from the Prada Foundation came to visit me, and she kept staring at my dress. She's like, who is that? You know, trying to figure out what it was, and it was like, you know, literally like a, a, like a $2 piece of fabric that I'd kind of safety pinned together. And I really, really liked having that rule, but after a number of years of doing the personal panels, I wanted to move on, and I was trying to think about how I could um, start to make other kinds of garments, but without breaking my rule. And so that's when I started to do what I call the single-strand garments, but they're crocheted. Because you're reducing, like, you know, the fabric is many strands woven together, but then you're reducing that to a single strand, and it's a first-hand motion, so like the whole garment's just made from beginning to end. It's not made into one thing and then changed into something else. So that actually kind of still remained within that framework really beautifully. So then there were several more years of single strand. And then reducing that to being able to, oh, so and I also, I crocheted rather than knitted at that time because I liked the idea that crocheting required one hook. Knitting required two needles. So like, you know, like the fewest implements possible. And then I figured out how to crochet on my fingers, which was really nice. And I started to think a lot about using your body to cover your body. Um, 
And then, you know, it became really clear that the final sort of manifestation of this whole sort of like path I was on would be felting, where, you know, you felt with your hands, like you rubbed the wool to make the garment to cover your body. So these, I figured out how to felt the dress in one piece rather than felting it and then sewing it. So these were some of the fiber, I call the felted works fiber forms, so the fiber form uniforms. So now we're going to kind of, I feel like this talks a bunch of like trips in time, so I'm kind of moving you around through different times. Now we're going to go to 1998, and I sh I've kind of shown you my life in New York and everything. In 1998, I fell in love and very, very spontaneously decided to, uh, like, seriously, in a period of a couple of weeks, decided to move to California to live with this guy. And so these are, fortunately, there's a lot of things I never documented. Fortunately, I have pictures of our house, so you can see how different it was. Uh, we had a bunch of cats, dogs, frogs, all living uh, everywhere on every surface. This is in the backyard. This is, uh, and my boyfriend at the time was a fabricator. And when there wasn't enough room for him to work in the garage, he would move everything into the house. So he, at one point, he was fabricating this really huge work for Jason Rhodes, and it took up all of the living room and all of the dining room. He was large, not, uh, not um, unattractively large, just a big guy. And so he would often break things when he would sit on them. Or, you know, he just, he was, you know, like a guy. And so... <laughs> I, and so it was just like this, it was like a real shock for me because, you know, it's what I wanted. I wanted to have a relationship and to be in love and to be able to live with this person. And yet it just completely burst my bubble because my whole, my practice and my identity and everything was so wrapped up in what I created at A to Z East. And um, actually I'm going to go back to that because I'm going to give too much away by showing you the rules of Raw. And so... Um, I was really, really stuck, and this was, you know, kind of into my career at some point where I was supposed to be producing work, and I had shows, and I, could, I was just paralyzed. I couldn't do anything. I was kind of like, who am I? And I realized I could never, you know, A to Z my boyfriend, so I couldn't do, I couldn't, like, kind of live and breathe my work the way I had been doing before. And I started to really think about how everything began, and I realized that in the very beginning, it was all about... I just kind of created things to deal with the reality of my life, like as a way to kind of compensate for all of the limitations. And so I realized that I needed to create a new ideology that embraced the reality of my life then. So I kind of came up with this word called raw and um, started to think about how, um, you know, what I really wanted that to do. So before all of my work would compensate for human deficiency and now my work kind of embraced that and tried to reconcile it. Um, so rather, you know, you know, people think that a, a well-designed surface should be easy to clean. Um, in my mind, a well-designed surface should absorb or camouflage dirt um, because all possessions ultimately break down or wear out. Um, raw objects should deteriorate beautifully. Another thing is that I, I'm a Virgo, so I, I'm really obsessed about filing and being neat, but I've found that sometimes when you're too tidy, you put things away and you never do them. So I actually think that being messy can be good sometimes, um, and I wanted to try and create structures that look good when they're messy. And so, okay, so I had that figured out, but I still didn't have like an actual product that did any of these things. So then I started looking around for ideas, and this was um, Seika, his ex-girlfriend's wolf dog who lived in the backyard on a chain because she ate cats. And, um, but Seika was 
kind of, you know, she was really cool. And she was actually a very, very happy dog. It was Seika and Zoe in this picture, actually. And so she would go out there every day and dig holes and lie in them and kind of constantly reconfigure them and look utterly content. And I started to think, you know, that gave me some inspiration. I thought, okay, that's what it should be like. So my first attempt at making raw furniture, I hired this guy, Bob Clark's special effects carver from Hollywood, because he's the only person who was willing to try and help me carve soft foam with a chainsaw. Um, I wanted to use that kind of charcoal gray soft foam, because that's kind of what's inside of furniture anyway. But I wanted to see if I could carve it into an environment that you just use directly. So Bob and I got a bunch of this foam, and we started carving it up. And I got a body grinder, so he'd carve, and I'd kind of smooth parts of it out. And it took us about 10 days. We'd get on it and sort of try it, see what felt good, keep moving things around, and this is what we made. Um, since then, I actually kind of like it when they're not too realistic or too perfect. So now I usually just carve it myself, um, now that I have a little more confidence with one of those turkey. Do you guys have those? Like they're electric carving knives that you use for meat. Um, so that I just carve them now. So they're a lot rougher. They're not quite as, you know, like, um, I don't know, as quite as, as Bob taking a break. So this was the final, this was the final product the, for the first time we showed it. There's kind of a nice story behind this piece. It's like a weird one, but I always think if there's enough people who are students, I like to tell it because um, it's just such a surreal story, too. Um, so this was the first show in... I show with Andrea Rosen Gallery in New York, and this was like the first show in her new gallery when she moved to Chelsea. And I was still a pretty young artist, so I felt like the stakes were high, and I wanted to do something really great. So I borrowed money to make this piece. Um, I think I borrowed like $18,000 to build it. So I wanted people to see how fabulous it was, how comfortable it was, how much they wanted it, but I didn't want them to get on it because if they damaged it, then I wouldn't be able to sell it. And um, I had this idea that the best way to keep people off of it would be to have two really happy, comfortable, naked people on it because <laughs> I never want to go near people who are naked. So, um, so I got these two guys who were comfortable and they hung out on it for the opening and it totally backfired because to kind of get more comfortable, they started drinking champagne and then they got drunk and then all of their friends had champagne and then all of their friends got naked and then everyone got on it and it was like totally ripped to shreds. So I was able to store it and I was able to exhibit it a few times, but I was never able to sell it. Um, I don't know what the lesson in that is, but I, it's just... So that's why there's a naked guy in the picture, I guess. But I wasn't there when they took that picture, so that was the gallery's decision. And everyone got really freaked out, too, which is weird. But anyway, so I still do make the carved foam furniture. There's some issues with it. Uh, toddlers like to bite big chunks out of it. Uh, if mice pee on it, it disintegrates the foam issues I have in the desert. And it lasts pretty long, but not forever. So I've been experimenting with other ways to make raw furniture that still sort of you know applies to all of these qualities I'm trying to get at. And I've been doing these carved and carved wooden pieces of furniture that I really like a lot. Um, this piece is actually in the show right now at Magazine Three, um, and that was a bookshelf. And then this is another shelving unit and bench unit. And then the idea is too is that when somebody uses it, it can it won't look like this. It won't look all perfect and lined up with the wall. It will have a lot of stuff on it, and it will get moved around. So by 1990, I was starting to show a lot internationally, and I was thinking about how art's been turned into such an export commodity where um, a lot of times 
you know, I felt like my work was being, or anyone's work for that matter, is shown in a culture that's so different than the one it was created in that sometimes it's really hard to understand the references that are being made or, you know, um, just kind of the original context of the work. And I decided that I wanted to create a kind of more intimate space for my own work where it would be conceptualized, um, created, and then viewed in the same space. And I also, I was writing a lot about this idea called um, intimate audience or intimate universe. And um, I also felt that, you know, wh why is it that artists are always trying to reach a broader and broader audience? I mean, what's wrong with actually having kind of a small audience where you would have like a more concentrated or tangible impact on them? And I really kind of wanted to get out of you know, a major kind of cultural center, and I felt like I wanted to live in the, you know, live in the world at large. I wanted to like make my practice in more of a regu you know, normal community and see if it still held up. So I moved to um, A to Z West, which is, um, if you guys have seen the show at Magazine 3, you've seen a lot of this by now, um, and started this kind of compound of testing grounds for my work. This is a really, really early photo of it. Um, my house was original um, homestead cabin, and I think I've spoken about that in the book, so I'm going to skip talking about that because you'll probably read about it. And, you know, similar to A to Z West, I started, again, I wasn't with the guy anymore, actually. So I started um, doing, like, the same thing where I would just kind of, my whole site was, my whole house was, like, where I would kind of experiment with new prototypes for living. So the reason I made the kitchen was because I was invited to be in a show in Napa. But there was a new museum they did for food, wine, and the arts, and the curator wanted me to be in her first show. And she kept saying, I want a piece about food. And I said, I hate cooking. I don't do it. And then she kind of, she was, I really like, she's somebody I know, and she kept calling me. And she's like, you know, she goes, there's a $10,000 budget for this. And I was like, oh, wait, I could do my kitchen for the house um, and show it there and then get it back for the house. So this was originally made through an exhibition and then they shipped it to me when they were done and that's how I got my kitchen. And the idea with it was that I was going to address everything that I hated about cooking, which I realized is really all about performance anxiety. And so I wanted to make a kitchen where, um, you know, each person can cook for themselves. So the table has a grill in the center of it. And, you know, um, I also like eating the same thing all the time. I wasn't doing the food group after I moved to the desert, but I did veggie burgers for like a whole year straight and then tacos for another year and a half after that. Um, so, you know, you, you just like cook it on the grill and then you put it in the indentation and you eat it. And the really cool thing is if you have company, they cook their own food so they can't get upset at you if it's not good. And also, I, the other thing I should mention is that these images are like really early images of A to Z West, and the book that just came out through Magazine 3 is so recent that there's a bunch of pictures in there that I don't even, like, they're not even in my slide talk yet. So you'll see that, you know, when you look at the book, you look at this or the PowerPoint in the show, they're all kind of like different because they were all done at different times. Um, so it doesn't look like this anymore. But this was another version of a raw desk that I used. I should also mention that I, the raw furniture, like this was inspired by, I read an anthropological report once saying that chairs are supposedly not the most comfortable way to seat the human body, but you know, it was, it was talking about why Westerners sit in chairs, and like, um, I think that it traced the use of chairs back to Egypt, where the sort of, you know, a ruler would sit above his subjects to elevate himself over subjects, and because being elevated connoted you know, higher rank, eventually everyone wanted to sit in chairs. 
I mean, supposedly that's one of the reasons that we're all sitting in chairs now. Um, so I, anyway, I was experimenting with different ways to position your body. And then this is another version of the raw desk. There was a cutout in the back for your legs. So you could kind of sit there. And that was my old studio in the shipping containers. So I've noticed that I think that everybody who comes to the, to the desert is drawn there because they're in search of some form of personal freedom. And, you know, originally, for, you know, I think that freedom, like most people have found that they found freedom by creating these large ranches and homesteads and, um, you know, kind of creating these, you know, these kind of like Western empires for themselves. Now that we live in such a bureaucratic society, I think that the, uh, I think that more often than not, the way that people that I see who live out here find freedom is actually instead of getting bigger, they become smaller and they become so small that they can slip between the cracks of all the regulatory systems like the building and safety department, um, the national park, the Bureau of Land Management. And I'm always hearing about these really creative ways that people manage to live with no credit cards or without houses so they don't have to pay taxes and they just sort of move every 14 days. So that's something I've been really interested in researching while I've been out there. And um, I, it's influenced my work because I needed to start to create um, places for people to stay when they came to do projects at A to Z West. And um, so I found that basically it, it became almost impossible for me to add on to my house because I had issues, setback issues. And or to build a structure on the one piece of property that I owned at that time. So I started trying to come up with different places where people could stay. And what I found is that if you make a structure that's less than 10 feet by 10 feet square and is portable, you don't have to pull any permits for it. So um, I tried these different prototypes, the most successful of which is the wagon stations um, that we started making and setting up all over the property for people to stay in. Um, they're called wagon stations because a station wagon um, is the smallest comfortable space that I can imagine sleeping in. And they're small enough that you can kind of move them anywhere you want. They're secure. You can lock them to put all your possessions in them. And they're big enough that they can accommodate two people and, you know, pretty much like your camp stove and all the gear that you need for sleeping in, for, for staying out. I think originally we made about 17 of them, and I know that at least 13 of them eventually have been customized by different friends and collaborators who came out a lot to A to Z West. Um, this is a picture of Guy Greens, who he's a local who lives out there. <laughs> Russell Witten, who was a dirt bike rider who worked for me in my studio, and um, so Russell made this as like he wanted it to be kind of like a hangout rest station when he was out riding his dirt bike. My friends Chris and Connie, um, this one is in the show as well. I don't know if you can see in this picture how they rigged it up in the rocks so that one foot is just completely suspended. One thing I should mention is that there, there's kind of a whole succession of other works that I've made like this, living units. Actually, there's one slide you'll see in a few minutes that were intended to be lived with and customized. And it was really, always, like, really, really hard for me to get people to actually use them or to actually change them. That was mostly because they were sold to collectors or institutions. With this body of work, it was the first time that rather than selling it, I decided to keep them myself and to kind of give them to people I knew to, to modify. 
And you know, I, what I found with my friends that was so great is that they had absolutely no hesitation to completely like cut them up and change them. Like there was no preciousness for them with its value as an artwork. And so for me, I feel like the project became much more alive because of that. That's them camping. That's Aaron Noble. See, like Aaron like took the plastic window out of it and he cut sections out of his because he wanted it to sort of breathe with the desert, which. Um, yeah, they would just do stuff without asking me. But, oh, this one's really crazy. This is Jonas Hauptman. He was the guy who fa originally fabricated them, and I gave him his own at the end of the project. The p components of this that have the white frame, that's the original one. And then he just added all these other sections to make it supersized. And that's mine. Um, that was I did that with um, my former partner, David, and we took two of them and put them back to back and turned it into a double wide, which was the super deluxe version. And I just quickly wanted to take a moment just to talk about customization because this is something, that, like I mentioned, that I've been doing since the early 90s. These were living units. I've done a whole series of different living units, and the idea with each living unit is that it would be customized by its owner to kind of reflect their tastes and needs and values. And escape vehicles, which were prototypes for um, a new kind of recreational vehicle where instead of going someplace you know, out in the world with it, you make your ultimate escape fantasy inside. And the slogan is, you know, when you want to escape, all you have to do is climb in and close the hatch. And then just to show you briefly, like, I think my interest in customization started with, I, I really like car culture. And I've always been super impressed at how, you know, within this culture, people, you know, they, they I think that they react against the homogeneity of, of, of what's offered to us through consumer culture. I mean, our options are so narrow, and so they react against that by making, turning these thing, you know, things into these, into like these total like radical new prototypes. I mean, they just completely take over and modify things and make them so fantastic. So I think people like that are amazing. Unfortunately, you know, in the 20 years that I've been thinking about customization as a form of empowerment, um, I think what's happened is that now customiz customization has come to mean this. So, you know, instead of the consumer kind of reacting against the narrow options provided, it's, you know, companies will offer you an ability to customize something by choosing the colors or something. So it's actually made us better consumers in some ways. When I made A to Z West, my idea was that my work would be born, live, and die in a single location. And I thought that by making my work in the context of my real life, it would make my work more real. And what happened after a while is that I started to feel like, in some ways, it made my life less real because I became really aware of everybody kind of like looking at me living my life. And, um, you know, I would kind of be drinking my coffee in the morning and then see somebody like walking around A to Z West looking at everything and I started to feel really self-conscious like my house always had to be clean and I always needed to be you know in uniform and I really hated that idea that maybe my work was just becoming this performance for show that it, you know my work I didn't think it was worth it to empty the reality out of my life if that makes sense and um, I started to think a lot about representation because I've always had the struggle with representation where I wanted my work to be like the most direct manifestation of an experience possible. And I realized that sometimes, so you know, if you were going to experience one of my works, you had to experience it for real. You couldn't experience um, like any kind of documentation of it. And 
I realize in some ways doing something like the PowerPoint that's in Magazine 3 right now, it actually uh, kind of, that one step of removal, um, it actually, I think, enhances the reality of the, I mean, of life. It's almost like, um, like the, it becomes a conduit, like art becomes a conduit through which you live life. And so I've been thinking a lot about representation maybe the last five or six years and opening myself up to different kinds of representation. So, you know, because I overthink everything, um, I had to define the ways that I represent experience in my work. And so I made these, these terms. This somehow helps me when I map all this out. So experience embodiment is your actual experience of something. Pictish depiction is a representation of an experience. Ideological resonator creates a psychological experience for someone or an idea about an experience. And material manifestation is the physical outcome of that. So I'm going to just show you some quick examples of that. So sufficient self, which is the PowerPoint that's at Magazine 3 right now, um, I consider that an example of Pictish depiction. And that was really nice because it allowed me to talk a about a lot of the theories and the different ideas behind my artwork that I was never able to communicate clearly through um, the actual, through the actual, like, ex objects themselves. You know, I'm actually, it gives me a voice. I can actually say things in that, in that piece. Um, I've been doing a series of billboard paintings called Ideological Resonators. And they, all of them have these texts that are sort of principles that I figured out over the years through my practice. I'm really drawn to advertising. I think about advertising a lot. And I've kind of developed a very illustrative approach when I paint these. Because I feel like if I paint them like illustrations, then I'm somehow side-skipping a lot of the the weight that comes through the whole history of painting. And also, I think that um, because people understand advertisements to be a form of propaganda, in a way, you can say something that you think, but you're not really lying. You know, um, So it allows you to say things that you think um, that might not actually be true, but without feeling guilty that you know, you're, you're lying. So they, they're, tr they're more truthful because they their transparency is a lie. And that there's something I think about a lot about the difference between belief and knowledge and how sometimes you can know one thing to be true, but you still choose to believe another thing. And I think that that's a really interesting um, phenomena. The other thing I'll just mention really quickly about these things I know for sure. This is actually a list I've been making since the 90s. And I sometimes describe myself as having been born in like the wrong period of art history because I'm so jealous of artists up until the 1960s. Because, you know, when you read, you know, Donald Judd writing, you realize that, you know, he was able to believe one thing through his whole practice and like just adamantly believe that he was right and that was true. And by the time that I went to art school, we were, you know, so well educated about kind of everything that everyone thought before us and how everyone ultimately was wrong in some way, that it's become impossible to really have any of these kind of, you know, firm, committed beliefs in art. And um, I, I just, you know, years ago, I thought, well, I don't have any big beliefs, but what if I start writing down every small thing I believe, and then maybe someday they'll amount to something big. So I just started this list. And no matter how trivial it is, if I like stumble upon something that I think is true, I'll write it down. And so it's kind of an ongoing collection of different things. The last kind of form of representation I'm going to show you is material manifestation. So an example of this are these crochet 
wall hangings that I've been doing called single strand forward motion. And this kind of evolved out of the crocheted garments I was making. Um, let's see if I have, oh good, I have images of these. So I was gonna very, very quickly show you these pic, uh, one picture of a Solowitz wall drawings. I'm really into these because I think it's so cool the way that, you know, with Solowitz, he would give you a set of instructions. And if you followed those instructions correctly, it would always turn up with a wall drawing that looked a certain way. You know, each wall drawing was slightly different, but it was always the same, and it goes back to my interest in rules, too, I think. It was just like a set of rules that manifested themselves as this outcome. And then I, I, when I was coming here in the cab, I was feeling kind of guilty about putting this slide in because I still don't, I read this article that I sometimes reference, and I, for, I can't remember where I read it, so I'm always hoping it's correct, but it really stuck with me. Um, but it was probably also in the 90s when a lot of architecture was just beginning to be computer generated. And it, a writer was talking about how when you look at architecture, you can um, always tell what kind of a program the architect was using. And he was using these different examples. And I like that idea of software a lot. You know, I like this idea that the software actually defines the outcome. So, you know, if I was to extrapolate that to think about art or even about life in general, I would say that I'm really interested in the way that our mental structures are related in the physical structures around us. So, you know, how, the way that that kind of appears in these crochet works is that I would create a series of rules. Crochet is really awesome because it's the only technology I've been able to find where you have a series of like incremental, um, you know, in incremental sort of units and they can be put together in different ways and you can, you know, and then you can make these kind of systems of rules that control that. So, you know, if you make a square corner, it's you put three stitches in the corner, it makes a square. If you put four, if you put two, it does something else. So with these pieces that I just showed you, I was allowed, sometimes I'm only allowed to go forward, which makes it really, really hard to make certain shapes. Um, probably like with this one, as I'm looking, I was only allowed to go forward and I could only do 90 degree corners, which would be three stitches. And so there was, and so even though every single one looks totally different, you can always tell the logic that was made when making it and they look really architectural, I think. Um, this one had, I was allowed to go forward and backwards so you can build thicknesses in different areas and I was allowed different numbers of stitches in the corner. So it's a very, very different shape. Uh, that was back to the first rule set that I told you. Um, and then this is what happens when you have no rules whatsoever. Because you also have the decision whether you're going to stick to like one plane or if you can go into three dimensions. So with no rules, you can end up with like these crazy shapes like this. And so this is the, the last thing I'm going to show you. Um, the, I've been doing these crochet wall hangings for a while now, and I've always thought of them as these kind of conceptual exercises. But I find that people often kind of lock in on them as being about craft. And I just wanted to, I was trying to think of any other process or technology that works the same way that I could experiment with to kind of draw a parallel. And the only other thing I could think of was actually walking, because walking's the same way. You're doing these incremental of units in space, and you can make basically the same decisions. And so I've started doing these performances called walking patterns, where um, so far I've only I've used four performers at a time, and they kind of walk the score to a, a crochet. So they walk the patterns that I would have crocheted. It's kind of hard to tell, but it's actually, they're quite beautiful when they happen because everybody's walking in this big room and they're kind of intercrossing. 
And so you see those same patterns in space. I was thinking it would be nice actually to show the video, but that's the end. Good.